Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. Give them a call. You can visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. Andrew Joppa will be joining. He's a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. And uh, endowed professor at the University of Houston, Larry Bell. He also is an author. He's written several books. His latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It is September the 29th, and on this day in 2008, after Congress failed to pass a $700 billion bank bailout plan, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 777.68 points. At the time, the largest single-day point loss in its history. Down 7%, a greater loss than the 684.81 skid on September the 17th, 2001, the first trading day post-9-11. The S&P 500 also suffered its biggest one-day loss since the 87 crash, dropping 8.8%, and the NASDAQ fell 9.1% in its biggest single-day point loss in eight years. The huge decline followed the bankruptcies of Wall Street uh, brokerage firm Lehman Brothers, savings and loan bank Washington Mutual, as well as the Fed's announcement it would provide $85 billion bailout for insurance provider American International Group, known as uh, AIG, to keep it from going under. Also playing into things was a housing slowdown that triggered homeowners to suffer subprime mortgage defaults, widespread job losses, and the Fed's intervention to bail out investment bank Bear Stearns, as well as government-sponsored Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Congress's inability to pass the Bush administration's bill led to fears that the nearly frozen credit markets wouldn't be able to rebound quickly, causing sellers to shed their stocks. The Dow dropped equaled a whopping $1.2 trillion loss in market value, contributing to the 18-month-long Great Recession. Congress eventually did pass a bailout bill, which was signing the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008. The Dow Jones uh, Industrial Average remained the largest single-day point loss until 2018. On March 16, 2020, the Dow Jones suffered its largest single-day drop yet. So, we remember that day well, I'm sure we all do. I remember I was in South Carolina. Well, is history repeating itself? U.S. stocks took a tumble yesterday as rising bond yields deepened a route in shares of technology uh, companies. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, the S&P 500 fell 2%, the Nasdaq Composite Index slid 2.8, and the Dow was down 1.6%. So no, nothing near the percentage sell-off back in 2008. Nevertheless, it was after a bill wasn't passed that put a, would have put a lot of money into circulation in the economy. And we're in the same situation right now, waiting for that $3.5 trillion bill, which hopefully will not pass. Tuesday's market sell-off was broad, pulling off uh, all but one of the S&P 500 sectors lower for the day. Traders put money out of technology. They pulled it out of technology shares. Uh, like Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. They each fell about 3.5%. Meanwhile, selling pressure accelerated in the government bond market. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury note rose from a sixth consecutive day Tuesday, selling at 1.534%, up from 1.482%. Bond yields rise, of course, as prices fall. Shares of energy companies avoided the broader sell-off. You know, Anne Rand once famously quipped that you can avoid reality, but you cannot avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. Think about that for a moment. I like that. President Joe Biden faced backlash on Tuesday after top U.S. military leaders testifying in front of the House Senate Armed Services Committee directly contradicted what Biden told the American public during an interview over the summer amidst the U.S. withdrawals from Afghanistan. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff uh, General Mark Milley, and Head of U.S. Central Command 
General uh, Kenneth McKenzie, gave their testimonies under oath in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee over Biden's chaotic pullout from Afghanistan last month. Biden faced widespread criticism comparing his prior remarks making, uh, made during an interview with uh, George Stephanopoulos back in August. Numerous uh, top Republicans wrote uh, online wrote that Biden lied. Biden had the following exchange with Stephanopoulos on August the 19th. So George Stephanopoulos said, So no one told your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. Can we do that? Can we continue to do that? Biden said, no. No one said that to me that I can recall. Look, George, the reason why it's been unstable for a year is because the last president said, we're leaving, and here's the deal I want to make with you, Taliban. We're going to agree to leave if you agree not to attack us between now and the time we leave on May the 1st. McKenzie said the recommendation that he gave to Biden was shaped by his honest opinion of the situation in Afghanistan, which was that the U.S. needed to maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan and that pulling out of those forces would lead inevitably to a collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. Well, he was right about that. Milley later said he agreed with that assessment. Milley and McKenzie made the remarks during their following exchange with Senator Jim Imhoff, Inhoff from Oklahoma. Imhoff said, I'd like to ask General McKenzie, did you agree to the, with the recommendation that General uh, Miley had two weeks er- ago? And uh, McKenzie said, Senator, again, I won't, I won't share my personal recommendation of the president, but I will give you my honest opinion. And my honest opinion and few shaped my recommendation. I recommended, <laughs> he goes on, so he's going to share his recommendation. I recommended that we main 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. And I also recommended earlier in the fall of 2020 that we maintained 4,500 at the time. Those are my personal views, and I've had a view that the withdrawal of those forces would leave inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. Imhoff said, yes, I understand that. And General Milley, I assume you agree with the terms of the recommendation of 2,500. Milley said, well, what I said would in my opening statement in the memorandum I wrote back then in the fall of 2020 re- remain consistent. I do agree with that, he said. Imhoff went on and said that the committee is unsure as to whether or not General Miller's recommendation ever got to the president. You know, obviously, there are conversations with the president, but I'd like to ask, even though, General McKenzie, I think you all made the statement, do you talk, did you talk to the president about General Miller's recommendation? McKenzie said, sir, I was present with that discussion occurred, and I'm confident the president heard all the recommendations and listened to him very thoughtfully. So, what do you conclude from that? What I conclude from that is the president lied. Uh, Austin also agreed Biden heard this input. So, by the way, uh, this, this I think just demonstrates the president out and out lied to uh, Stephanopoulos during that interview. And uh, he did things against the will and the uh, feedback and the advice of his generals at leading to this disaster in Afghanistan. If they'd followed his advice, we'd still have Bagram Air Force Base. We'd have 2,500 troops there to maintain uh, civil order and to protect our interests. And we still have $83 billion worth of uh, armaments that have been t- now turned over to the Taliban. Cash Patel, former Chief of Staff of Acting Secretary of Defense Christopher Miller, blasted Secretary of State Anthony Blinken for claiming that Trump administration did not leave President Biden a plan for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. He certainly did. So interesting to me that he uh, apparently not only left a plan, but also a pretty detailed plan of how to withdraw, and uh, he was not confined. Biden was not confined by what uh, Trump said and did with the Taliban. Pasaki was asked about at length during an interview with the White House press briefing as well. A reporter asked about the seeming contradiction. So did the president mislead the American public about the advice of the military leaders? Boy, did she tap dance. Well, let me give you a full couple of specifics from the actual transcript because I know it's been shorthanded a bit. No malintent. But the question asked by George Stephanopoulos was, did your military advisors warn against withdrawing on this timeline? They wanted you to keep about 2,500 troops, the president said. No, they didn't. It was split. That wasn't true. That wasn't true. It was split. 
I think that's a pretty key part of the phrasing there. Pisaki said, of course, it wasn't split. They all agreed. So Pisaki was simply, you know, she, one of the things, she doesn't do much very well, but what she does well is lie on behalf of the administration. So sad. Well, Nancy, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told Democrats in a caucus meeting late Monday that they must pass the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill this week before their massive reconciliation bill, a reversal from her past stance. She also was allied with uh, progressive members of their party for months where uh, that demanding reconciliation bill passed before infrastructure. She shifted that stance recently with the aim of uniting Democrats around a framework of a reconciliation bill, not fully passing it before moving ahead with infrastructure. But Monday night marked a full reversal for Pelosi who said stubborn Senate moderates and the looming expiration of highway funds is forcing her hand. Well, we certainly hope so. And in, in fact, I hope this entire scheme of excess spending fails on the part of the Democrats. It will leave the comp- country better off if they fail. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and building a brand-new 43,000-square-foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. Please uh, go to the website and find out more, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author. He's a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. 
So uh, the filibuster is a much maligned and misunderstood uh, concept. I thought it might be interesting to talk about the filibuster question. What's the background of the filibuster? Well, the Senate has the filibuster, and it's been around since mid-1800s. Beginning in the early 1900s, a cloture vote, that is a vote to shut off debate, required a two-thirds supermajority. That was changed to 60 votes in 1975. Strom Thurmond, you remember him, the Democrat from South Carolina, he set the record in 1957 with a civil rights uh, talk that went for 24 hours and 18 minutes. But uh, nowadays, the senators don't even have to speak. They just announce their intent to prolong debate, and that triggers the uh, 60-vote cloture rule. So what's meant by the nuclear option? Well, suppose senators want to revise the 60-vote rule. Uh, The rules can can be revised by majority vote. But suppose further that the vote on revising the rule is filibustered. And then according to the Senate rules, if a vote to change the 60-vote rule is filibustered, then it takes two-thirds of the senators to break the filibuster. So the so-called nuclear option overrode that rule. And there were two versions of the nuclear option. One was simple and one was a little more complicated. The simple version was, on the first day of a new Congress, there are no Senate rules that apply. They haven't voted on their rules yet. And therefore, new rules can be adopted and debate can be halted by the default procedure, which is, of course, majority vote. But after the first day, you don't have that option. So the second version, a little more complicated, but it can be used any time. One party, let's say the Republicans, wants to change the 60-vote rule to 51 votes. The Democrats decide they're going to filibuster the vote to change the rule, which means it would take 67 votes Mm -hmm. to close that debate. But the Republicans go for the nuclear option, which is a point of order upheld by the presiding officer declaring that the 67-vote requirement is unconstitutional. And that's what's been done a couple of times in the past. Yeah, and, and none of this is, con- I mean, apparently it's just the rules of the Senate. It's got nothing to do with the Constitution. The, the Constitution right. allows them to make their own rules. That, that's correct. Wow. So has the nuclear option been used in the past? Yeah, in, to, in 2005, <clears throat> the Republicans threatened the nuclear option to stop the Democrats from blocking uh, George W.'s uh, judicial nominees. And in response, the Democrats said they were going to shut down all Senate business. And then Senator, by the way, Obama, who was a senator from Illinois, said, I urge my Republican colleagues not to go through with changing these rules. In the long run, it's not a good result for either party. <clears throat> he was right about that, mm-hmm. although he changed his mind later. Eventually, the confrontation was diffused when we had what's called the Gang of 14. That was seven folks from each party. And they agreed not to filibuster judicial nominees, except in extraordinary circumstances, and they left that undefined. So the Republicans never did use it in 2005. But eight years later, the Democrats gained control of the Senate, and and Harry Reid, the majority leader, who, who, by the way, had previously opposed any effort to change the Senate rules, he abruptly decided to support the nuclear option that he had been vigorously against. And as a result, we then had a new rule. Uh, The minority cannot filibuster uh, executive appointments and federal judicial nominees except for the Supreme Court nominees. So that's when when, uh, Reed actually did use uh, the nuclear option. So uh, what are the implications of the new rule? Well, as you might have guessed, as soon as as the Republicans got back in control of of the Senate, uh, the rule change backfired on Reid and the Democrats, because not only was it an unexpected gift to the Republicans, it opened the door to the second use of the nuclear option to ensure the confirmation of, of Supreme Court nominees. The Democrats had said everything but Supreme Court. The Republicans extended it to say Supreme Court. And that's what happened, and it's why the Democrats weren't able to stop uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and uh, Amy Coney Barrett, because and the Republicans invoked the nuclear option for Supreme Court nominees. 
So, uh, as a libertarian, as a chairman of the Cato Institute, are you in favor of the filibuster? Well, you know, the gripe against it is it's undemocratic because it stifles the majority. I think that misses the point. I mean, we're, we're not a democracy. We're a republic, and the Constitution is intentionally undemocratic. Uh, the framers were concerned about uh, tyranny by the majority. So, and, and recent majorities on both sides of the aisle have proven that the concerns are are justified, and the filibuster is sort of a counterweight uh, to that uh, problem. And the, the framers, as you know, wrote a constitution that's loaded with protections against uh, majority rule. So we, we, you know, we have limited and enumerated federal powers. We have two senators from each state. We have the Electoral College, the Bill of Rights, and, and uh, the Constitution expressly requires two-thirds votes to do certain things like constitutional amendments and override vetoes and treaties and a few other things. So the filibuster's supermajority requirement, it may be undemocratic, but that's precisely why we have it. Yeah, yeah. I, I sometimes hear people complain about the fact that Congress can't get anything done. I think to myself, hey, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good thing. <laughs> so would you like to see a permanent 60-vote requirement to confirm judges? Yeah. Uh, without the filibuster, we'd be laboring under a federal government that's uh, even larger than the behemoth that we have. Uh, thanks to the filibuster, senators occasionally you know, throw a few grains of sand into the uh, regulatory and redistributive states' uh, grinding wheels. Um, so I, I think the, the filibuster is a valuable safeguard, and we'd be better off if it were actually codified as part of the Constitution, especially when it comes to significant expenditures and tax increases, but also, I'd say, for confirmation of federal judges. I mean, these guys have lifetime tenure yeah. on the bench. And so unless and until we establish judicial term limits, which is another good idea, but we don't have it, uh, I think until that time, it's little enough to insist that lifetime appointees have a supermajority uh, approval. Would you change uh, the lifetime appointment uh, rule? Well, uh, back in the 70s, uh, 1970s, Mike Mansfield, the Democratic majority leader, created this two-track system where the Senate can set aside a filibustered bill and proceed on to other matters. So, in effect... That eliminated the talking filibuster in favor of, you know, just merely announce it go forward. Uh, previously, the, the filibusters had to hold the floor, and that tested their stamina, but it also inconvenienced the majority, and as a result, the majority might be convinced to accommodate the minority's, minority's concerns. So I think one possible ref reform would be to restore the old rule that you had to talk uh, the downside, of course, is that that creates delays in the Senate's business. Uh, other reforms, the Senate would have to get enough votes to, to continue debate rather than get enough votes to close debate. That's one possibility. And finally, uh, the rules could be changed to require only three-fifths of those present and voting to end the filibuster rather than three-fifths of all senators. Put it all together, I'd leave the filibuster the way it is. So interesting. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. I encourage you to visit the website, cato.org, C-A-T-O dot org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed, and very interesting conversation. So that's the filibuster. Moving on, we're going to be visiting with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. 
That's 261-8239, Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website vfga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. Did you watch the hearings yesterday? I did. I, I watched every, every moment of it. I normally don't, but I thought this was important enough to give my time to. So, you know, there were a lot of things that came out of it uh, that were, I think, revealing. I think that probably the most uh, significant was both uh, General McKenzie and Milley both confirmed that they had advised the president to keep troops in Afghanistan after the 31st date that uh, was the announced date of withdrawal. Uh, that was also confirmed by Austin. Now, the president had said that he remembered, he, he doesn't remember getting anything like that. That wasn't his exact words, but that was the implication. So here we have a president that's either lying to the American people about something very critical, or in fact so senile, if we put it in that category, that he didn't remember something as, as important as that. No. So I think that was probably the most significant thing to uh, to draw down from that uh, the Senate hearing. Uh, also, we had it at the interactions uh, of Milley that he confirmed with the Chinese, where he contacted the Chinese with no authorization from the Trump administration to let them know that we were not planning to attack. Now, suppose the president, the administration in, in total, had wanted to think, that ch the, the Chinese, to think that we were going to attack. So, yeah, I'm not suggesting any of that is true, but the hypothetical is true, mm -hmm. uh, and that means that the general should not uh, initiate that kind of contact entirely on his own. Beyond that, Milley had a conversation, which obviously was political, with Nancy Pelosi, where the, she was challenging uh President Trump's mental status uh, in order in, in regards to nuclear response. Uh, now she would not have talked to Milley if, if he if she did not believe that Milley was a significant political ally, which she had confirmed multiple times uh, during the, uh, the Trump administration itself. So I think Milley was uh, was exposed. I think McKenzie uh, took full responsibility for the. Uh, the, uh, the drone attack that killed uh, seven uh, innocent uh, civilians. Uh, I'm always amazed when somebody accepts responsibility but uh, don't accept the accountability for this whole process. We could sort of link this all together with the, uh, the problems being experienced by Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. Yeah. Uh, Scheller was removed from command, a very distinguished 17-year military career, removed from command, and now is imprisoned in a military brig uh, for violating the uniform code of military justice. We also can get back to Milley and look at his, uh, his um, uh, reaction to white rage and all of these very eccentric comments. Uh, we can link Austin to these things with uh, his intent to cleanse the military of extremism and to give at least head nodding support to the dishonorable discharge of military uh, people who would not get the vaccine. That was described by, by Austin as being a lawful order. 
I think that is a debatable premise that uh, demanding that a military man get in a, get in a, uh, a vaccine is a lawful order. So uh, there was a lot that came out of it. One more thing before we move on, Bob. Uh, Senator Imhoff, uh, who I liked, made a comment that the primary purpose of the president is to keep Americans safe. Right. And I, I hear this kind of comment all the time. To me, Bob, it's a dangerous comment. The primary purpose of the president, of the federal government, is to keep us free. Mm-hmm. Safety is, a, is an important secondary purpose. But if we're made safe by depriving us of our freedom, that is a, a, a total qualitative loss uh, for America and the American people, Bob. So uh, those are my quick thoughts about that that uh, yeah. hearing yesterday. Uh, it was embarrassing as far as I was concerned to hear military men uh, uh, trying to dodge the bullet of responsibility uh, as it pertains to the to the fiasco in uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, I think it was described by Austin as a uh, how did he describe it? I think he described it as a tactical, no, I'm sorry, a logistical success, but a strategic failure. I mean, you talk about uh, hedging your bets. So uh, there was so much of that going on that uh, certainly it was at the end of the day, uh, it, it looked like the only person that could possibly have responsibility was Joe Biden. Well, I agree with that. In fact, uh, the old saying, the fish rots from the head down, and certainly Joe Biden, in my opinion, once could say that he was senile and didn't remember. I think, he, you know, he's an accomplished liar. He's demonstrated that all, his, all of his career. And, uh, you know, plausible deniability. Remember Bob Linsky's t- uh, uh, testimony? He definitely uh, has plausible deniability by saying that, as I recall, certainly he recalled and he understood that. But obviously these generals made that point with him. So, uh, again, I, th- I hold him accountable. And I think the generals also are accountable be- f- uh, for their actions and all the things that you've pointed out. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, that made the comment. He said, when people are willing to trade off their freedom for security, they often end up with neither. I mean, I think that was wisdom then. It certainly is, uh, is true now. I think we're seeing that not only in terms of uh, Imhoff's comments yesterday, but certainly our, our, our reaction to the, uh, the, the, the COVID-19 vaccination process. Uh, apparently, uh, there is nothing that the federal government can't impose on us, or state governments in some cases, obviously, can impose on us in the sake of, for the sake of, uh, of safety right. uh, from getting, from getting the, uh, that flu. Uh, so essentially, I think that is a process that is, by the way, as long as we're there for a moment, Bob, I still don't understand why the vaccinated are afraid of the unvaccinated. <laughs> uh, it seems to be uh, in, absolutely absurd. Uh, and I actually read yesterday that the viral load in the nasal passages of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated are exactly the same. In yeah. other words, yeah. if you're vaccinated, you still retain the same potential for transmission as for the unvaccinated, at least that was the implication of that study. Right. So I think we're seeing a, a dramatic hyperbolic process. I believe, Bob, this is all being used for political purpose, uh, heading towards the uh, the election cycles of 2022 and again beyond that to 2024. Uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, anyone would put America and Americans through this process for the sake of gaining uh, control of an election system. Uh, but look, I have no doubts that the Democrats are planning right now to do exactly that. I think they'll use COVID-19 as part of that process. Uh, and I think that is a uh, something that must be given uh, our attention. Uh, it'll be part of what I'll be talking about in a second. But I think the major thing we must concern ourselves with is the legality of the elections in the midterm and the 2024 presidential elections. I believe, Bob, if, if those elections are legal, I think we will take back the House, we will increase our or uh, gain a significant uh, lead in the Senate. Uh, I think that is what the vote, a legal vote will do. I think the Democrats know that. I think they are planning to do as much as they can yeah. to ensure that that legal vote never happens in 2022 or 24. Well said, Andy. I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, it just reminds me of the cartoon of one mouse looking at the other and saying, no, I'm not going to get vaccinated until, I, until we get the results from the human trials. The fact of the matter <laughs> is, this, this, <laughs> this is it's kind of cute, huh? So this, I, yeah, uh, the fact of the matter is, it's against uh, the uh, Nuremberg uh, 
this is a this is an experimental drug right now that's being used. You can't and to mandate that people take it that's against the law. It's against international law. Well, again, without knowing the long-term implication, we go back to the military. Suppose there is a significant long-term implication, you know, and I'm, I, I have no way of knowing this, obviously, but uh, let's say it produces long-term disabilities. That means our whole military would essentially uh, be diminished in capacity at, a, at a, perhaps a strategic point in time. Right. I, I don't know any of that, but neither do they, Bob. That's Neither right. do they know the long-term implication. Obviously, we've seen over and over the misstatements about these uh, vaccines uh, that have proven not to be true. So uh, there is obviously a, a, a vast uh, uh, gap of knowledge as it pertains uh, to these vaccines and their implications. So let's talk about uh, restoring federalism. And uh, you had uh, sent me a couple of interesting comments about what you believe would ha- be most impactful in terms of uh, protecting our rights. Well, this this gets back to some comments I just made with you a few minutes ago. Uh, I believe that the legality of the election is the key for saving America. If we can do that, I think America will be saved. And, and the question is, how do we how do we go about ensuring that? If we start out with the the premise that. Uh, the Republican strength in the federal government is uh, is weak or even non-existent in terms of their their uh, pushing for uh, aggressive uh, po- positive policies for America. But if we look at the states, in the states we can see a significant uh, advantage for the Republicans and a far more aggressive Republican Party. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but there are thirty fully controlled legislator states uh, for the Republican Party. Thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially, and, and by the way, just looking at the population of those states, there are 50 million more voters in those states than there are in the Democrat states. So if we look at where our strength is, our strength is the Republican Party at the state level. The mm-hmm. question then becomes, Bob, how do we access that strength in a, in a, in a, in a unified process that would matter? Uh, you know, and I, I've talked about this before, I had been the uh, the group coordinator for the Convention of States in Southwest Florida. I've somewhat fallen away from that process till now. I have contacted them and I've suggested that the focus of the Convention of States in terms of an amendments convention be entirely on the repeal of the 17th Amendment. Now, for those groups that have uh, been concerned about the uh, amendment convention, this particular approach should not be in that category primarily because we would not be changing the original Constitution, but going back to the original Constitution. Uh, for your listeners who aren't aware, the 17th Amendment uh, had moved the uh, create the appointment of senators from the state legislatures into the voting public of those states. That was probably the most serious assault on, on federalism that has ever occurred. If we could create a repeal of the 17th Amendment, bringing back the the original concept of federalism as the founding fathers wanted let's say we can gain all 30 of those state legislative controlled republican states that would be immediately 60 60 republican senators uh, and again those senators can be uh, recalled at will by the state legislatures now it probably wouldn't work out as smoothly as i've just described it but if we're looking for an answer and if the problem is one of legality of the vote, and I believe it is, there is no better way to do it than by the repeal of the 17th Amendment, Bob. So, Andy, uh, for our listeners' benefit that may not be familiar with Article 5 of the Constitution, basically uh, says that uh, when things get to the states where I think, quite frankly, we can describe as now, uh, when things are just out of control, it's possible for the people to call a convention uh, to create amendments to the Constitution or to change the Constitution, quite frankly. Uh, they, they can change it. I think those have uh, drawn some uh, some uh, uh, concerns from uh, far-right-wing groups, the Birch Society, the Eagle Forum, and so forth. And, and I understand those concerns. They were afraid of a runaway convention. Yeah. But if our focus is, exactly as you've described it, uh, to have an amendment convention called, 34 states would request that, uh, that the, the Congress, the federal Congress, must grant that uh, that convention, uh, and if they if that convention meets, focused on one issue, as I to be redundant, but I think it's an important redundancy to repeal the Seventeenth Amendment. I think that uh, most, if not all, of American problems could be solved merely by that strong, solid republic. 
state legislatively generated Senate under under Republican control. So I'll, I'll make this comment. I think one of uh, the um, motivations for the 17th Amendment was the fact that there was so much corruption in state houses around the United States. So, uh, w you know, we weren't taking care of business as citizens, and so what we did is we just kicked the can down the road, in, in a sense, and decided to make this uh, through elections in the states rather than the state houses choosing our senators. But if we're good citizens and we make sure that we have good, sound uh, representation in that and the uh, uh, legislatures and the state legislatures it is the best way to run this it brings us it brings everything closer to the voters and away from uh, the f the uh, federal government and, and by the way the the point you made about the corruption in the state governments was being used by the progressives in 1913 as as a way of uh, trying to uh, gain uh, leverage for the 17th amendment Certainly, there was a degree of truth, but it was vastly overstated at that point. Huh. Uh, if we look at 1913, a critical, pivotal year for America, <clears throat> that was the same year the progressives also brought in the, the 16th Amendment, which is the income tax amendment. So there was a lot of progressive movement, a lot of progressive control, even then of the media. Uh, so the degree of corruption in the state legislatures was vastly overstated. It can't be ignored. But it certainly was not as serious a situation. And, and again, I believe we're in a, uh, I'm going to describe it as a desperate situation to try to save America. And I think restoring the states to their legitimate power in the role of federalism uh, is the way to go. Even if we fail, and I say we, the Convention of States, even if we fail, it will bring the focus back to where it should be, yeah. an understanding of the appropriate role of the states within the national government. Okay, so Andy, help us, our listeners, understand uh, if, in fact, we repealed the 17th Amendment, it goes back to the uh, legislatures, state legislatures, appointing their senators to the United States Senate. So uh, how would that process work? Would it uh, be uh, for a six-year term? What would be the d details of the situation? You just hit on probably the greatest complexity of it. In other words, we're, once we're in an existing system, uh, with one third of the the senators being elected uh, every every second year, uh, to try to get the the flow of this as it would would unfold is is a complexity, and there's no doubt about that, Bob. You you, you obviously uh, thought about that point before. It's a legitimate point. Uh, however, um, with that aside, and I, I have to push it aside for the moment, the, the basic issue of that happening, I think, is is going to be the answer. Whether or not it mm -hmm. could happen rapidly enough for 2022 is obviously in doubt. I think there is a significant chance for 2024. Uh, right now, we have uh, 14 states that have already applied for an amendment convention. We have nine others that uh, have it, it's gone through at least one uh, one part of their legislative body, and in 24 others, it is being debated. So this is a, a process that has legs at this point. Uh, you pointed out a problem, and I can't ignore that. That is a problem. But again, uh, if the issue is saving America, and if the issue is uh, the answer to that is restoring the states to their role in federalism, I, this is the way to go, and I think we could we could get it done uh, in spite of the complexity you've highlighted. Bob. Yeah. So just to to also the, the process that we have right now as we elect United States senators, it costs vast amounts of money. It's really controlled by money, raising money and uh, advertising to in order to get the. Uh, the, the electorate out and voting for one particular candidate, whereas this process would simply be the state house and legislature, the Senate, would uh, determine what their priorities are and who might best represent those priorities in Washington. And I think that is a far better process. And, you, you know, if you just think about it, uh, that now we have another body up there. That much it's, it's similar to the House of Representatives in some ways, except the election cycle is every six years. Well, that's right. The, the Senate has been called by many as the upper House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. If we look at the way it's been described, the, uh, the House of Representatives was the, the House of the people and the Senate was the House of the states. Uh, and that, is, uh, that was a, uh, a, a cornerstone of the design of the American government. Uh, it was, to me, outrageous that they were willing to totally alter one of the primary constructs of the Constitution. 
And I think since 1913, we've been experiencing the pain of that absurdity. And again, there were a lot of distortions being offered by the progressive movement in 1913 to get that done. Uh, but I think that, that the system was working well prior to that. I think uh, in some way, the attempt to get back to it again is the way to go at this point. You know, I'd point out, though, you don't really need an uh, uh, Article 5 convention uh, to, in order to to uh, repeal the 17th Amendment. We actually did that with uh, uh, with uh, the uh, alcohol. <laughs> what do we call it? The uh, Yeah, that was the other part of Article 5. The other part of Article 5 uh, creates the process where uh, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate can can approve a an amendment and goes to the states with uh, three-quarters of the states approving. Uh, now, the repeal of, of prohibition had a, uh, a popular support uh, at that process. Uh, certainly, this would not have that kind of support, yeah. certainly from from the uh, the liberal side of the political uh, ledger. Uh, so, yes, you're right. There is another way to do it. Uh, there probably is another way. Uh, uh, a compact of states could be formed. Uh, now, there's nothing illegal about states meeting to form a compact to uh, to reach that kind of agreement among themselves. Uh, so, but to me, the the best way, the most constitutionally authorized method, is to use the Constitution. And as you described it, it was a a last ditch measure, sort of a uh, break the glass during emergency type of thing. Yeah. And the 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 founding fathers, with their wisdom gave us this emergency tool if the federal government gets out of control. And that's exactly where we are right now, Bob. Absolutely. Andrew Jopp, again, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Off topic for today's discussion, but a great read, Josephus of Oz by Andrew Joppa. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Talk soon, Bob. Thank you so much. Coming up, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence, serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. 
He's also the author of several books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure, Professor. And I point out to our listeners that you also write a column for Newsmax.com. It's called On Point. And your latest, Despite Disasters, Split Senate Dems Are Stuck with Joe. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, Bob. I had been laboring under the assumption previously that there's this chain of command in terms of uh, uh, who who is in line to become president. And uh, let's imagine that we have uh, first Joe Biden and then Kamala Harris and then Nancy Pelosi third in line. <clears throat> so my assumption had been, I think incorrectly, that uh, if... Uh, Biden were to you know, would leave office for whatever reason, and I think we can all imagine a couple of them at least. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then uh, basically, uh, being forced out would be uh, uh, Kamala would be his best insurance policy because a lot of uh, a lot of both Republicans and Democrats would. Uh, would, would take quite quite a lot of interest if that were to happen. And so we just kind of I just kind of assumed that that uh, Republicans would want to keep uh, would be re- reluctant to have anything happen to Joe because then they get Kamala, which would hardly be an improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, then I came across an article in the American Thinker by uh, Clayton Spawn, and he something I thought was, you know, kind of a game-changer in my thinking, that uh, should Kamala become president, basically, she vacates the vice presidency. Mm-hmm. And that would have to be, uh, you know, that would have to be, um, that seat would have to be approved by the, by the Senate. And uh, in doing so, with the vice presidency vacant, uh, the Democrats lose a tie-breaking vote because now we have a split Senate and uh, of course we're seeing all kinds of evidences right now that you know the uh, when you have a simple majority requirement then uh, you know when losing that vice presidential tiebreaker is like losing a Senate vote well I think the Republicans would be smart enough to to not uh, approve any nominee leaving the vice presidency open mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, denying the tie-breaking opportunity for the Democrats. So I thought that was a rather interesting insight. In, in other words, and, the, the, uh, the uh, president has an insurance policy is that in that people don't like Kamala Harris so much they'd prefer to keep him in office <laughs> as opposed to having her take over if he were to be taken out of office, either through impeachment or through uh, uh, this Article 25 or uh, 25th yeah. Amendment. Well, isn't it interesting? Uh, we see, you know, Joe Biden's poll numbers are dropping like a rock, and uh, it's disaster after disaster after disaster. We see Kamala distancing herself from from these disasters to the point she can. She, you know, was supposed to be the, the border czar, and she kind of uh, skipped town on that one real quick. And then we hear we have this Afghanistan total debacle, and we're not seeing a lot of uh, visibility at all with Kamala on that. So Kamala, Kamala, you recall also in the. Democrat primaries was the first one to to basically bow out because she had no support whatsoever. The fact of the matter is she she has a personality that competes with uh, Hillary Clinton, and she's just not not likable. And uh, her cackling, you know, cackling Kamala, her 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 kind of inf- I think involuntary response where she gets nervous and she laughs, and it comes across at very inopportune times certainly doesn't help matters. So, mm-hmm. so we've always had the the thing where, you know, that, that horrible red man, you know, or the orange guy, you know, Trump, has been the main uh, uh, flair that the Democrats have always shot, you know, that 
when when Biden was going to be the uniter, he wasn't. The two th- I think the two things he promised he wasn't going to tweet and and uh, you know he was he was going to be this uniting candidate. Um, he, he was he wasn't Trump, and uh, he was going to crush the virus. And I think the his overreach on the vaccines now doesn't mention the Trump vaccine, but you know he's, he's going to face a lot of constitutional challenges. Yeah. Article in the Wall Street Journal this morning about the uh, his vaccine mandates, mandates which a lot of people are really offended by. It doesn't make any allowances for people who have natural immunity from having contacted, uh, you know, COVID nineteen and, and contracted it rather, and and uh, and so on. So there is just a disaster on every every front, and uh, so you. I think essentially you look at twenty twenty four. I'm convinced that that. that uh, Donald Trump will run. I think he wants indication, and I think he's got a lot of support. I think he owns a party. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine you got the orange guy against Kathleen Kamala, and you got a <laughs> you know quite a, quite a circus. Well, we got a lot of time between now and then. And my fear is that it would be neither of them, but perhaps somebody like Newsom from California that would uh, who is up, you know just as uh, just as autocratic as as any of them. And uh, makes poor decisions, but apparently is more likable. I haven't, seen, I don't particularly like him, but some people say that he is. So that could be another a lot of time between now and then. Uh, by the way, I'm I've come in contact with uh, a, a U.S. Senate candidate Eric Audland from Colorado, and I've got an article coming out this morning. What interview I did with him, and I like the guy. Uh, I don't have any. Financial investment in him. I'm not. I'm not. I don't have any, you know, any conflict of interest. But I like the fellow. I had, you know, he was in Texas. I had dinner with him the other night, and uh, he's he's a fellow running against Michael Bennett. But Michael Bennett is a typical, you know, Democrat, totally totally tied to the Democrat uh, uh, agendas, and uh, and Eric is. a war veteran. He's got two bronze stars. He served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a captain, commander, and hmm. uh, but he but he's got background also in in oil, and uh, he managed a large pipeline project in Israel, and uh, and and so we look at even a state like Colorado that's pretty blue. I mean, they really went for uh, you know for the for the Democrats, but I think they're vulnerable. I think some of these programs, like the Green New Deal and crushing oil, you know, Colorado, for example, has a thirty billion dollar a year revenue stream from from you know from hydrocarbons. Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting race. It certainly is. This this all is transpiring to become extremely interesting right now. This is going to be a very interesting week, uh, Larry, uh, with regard to the votes on the infrastructure bill and the. Build back better agenda with the with all the socialist nonsense that they want to uh, put in place. From I just hope it all fails. I hope it collapses like a house of cards. Well, I don't quite understand uh, the bravado of the Democrats. Maybe they'll maybe they'll pull it off. And I think tying infrastructure to the reconciliation. I, I think Pelosi's view is that uh, people want infrastructure so badly that they'll just they'll just give away the farm in order to get it. Yeah. And uh, to me, it seems like a bridge too far. It kind of reminds me of back in the day when you know when I was in high school, people played chicken, you know, and it's, this, this is a this is a real goose goose chase here. We got the clash with uh, you know uh, you know cinema and mansion against trying to hold hold off against the uh, Pelosi onslaught and the Bernie Sanders, and and I'm I'm hopeful, but boy, it's a it's a white knuckle uh, week, as you said. Absolutely. Again, Professor Larry Bell, I encourage you to get a copy of his book, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Also, check out Newsmax.com and Larry's uh, column, On Point. Professor, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And bye-bye. I always enjoy it. Thank you so much. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it uh, tomorrow. We're going to visit with uh, Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Seton Motley is the is the founder and publisher and president of Less Government. We'll also visit with former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett. We'll touch on the local scene. We'll also have another guest as well, uh, Lawrence Mead, 
I hope you make it a, a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Listening to the Bob Harton Show on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharton.com.